If you would, you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 133, and we're going to just read verse 1 to start with. I hope you brought your Bible. We're going to cover quite a bit of it tonight. 133 and 1 of Psalms. If you're there, say, I'm there. Praise the, praise the Lord. And we're going to get it right there on the screen. Here we go. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Somebody say in unity. In unity. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight, obviously, my, my topic for your consideration is going to be unity. Unity is something that is demonstrated throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Though, and when I studied this, it was surprising to me, and maybe it'll surprise many of you just like it did me, the word unity itself actually only appears three times in the entirety of Scripture. Though that word only appears those three times, there are numerous examples of it in the word from one end to the other. In Joshua chapter 6, for example, the children of Israel marched in silence around the walls of Jericho once a day for six days without uttering a word. And seven times on the seventh day with one unified sound, these trumpets sounded and the people shouted and walls came down. In Nehemiah, a united people gathered together to get a wall back up. After Jerusalem had been destroyed and her people exiled for 70 years, they returned to see their city in ruin. Released from their captivity and tasked with rebuilding the walls in the face of great hostility, opposition, and adversity, the walls of Jerusalem are built in an astounding 52 days. In Esther, when Mordecai hears of Haman's plot to destroy all the Jews, Esther advises to gather together all the people, all the Jews, for a fast. Esther then appears before the king, brings the fate of her people to his attention, and he changes his decree, saving the nation and destroying their enemy. Jonah, the prophet, is sent to declare a message of destruction to the wicked city of Nineveh. Forty days, Nineveh, and you'll be destroyed. The wicked city unites in repentance, fasting and crying out to God, they repent of their evil, and God repents in turn from his. There's another place in the Bible where a group of people gathered together in one place with one common purpose, and their unity gets God's attention, and they begin to speak in a different tongue. But I'm not thinking of where you're thinking of right now. I'm speaking of a place called Babel. Much earlier in the word of God, and find in Genesis 11, a generation one generation removed from the flood and the destruction of the earth where the people were of one language and one speech. It's possible, the Bible indicates by saying this, that it's possible to speak the same language yet say different things. These people not only spoke a common language, but what they were saying was also common. They determined that they couldn't trust the covenant God made by the rainbow, that he was not to be trusted. How could they be sure that he wouldn't destroy the earth with a flood again so they purposed to build something to escape the next flood? Why would we build something to escape God's judgment if we could just live the way that he's expecting us to live and escape it anyways? 
But instead, the people at Babel chose to live in rebellion and decide to build something to reach heaven. It's their unity that gets God's attention. Let me point your attention to Genesis 11, 5 and 6. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing, hear me, when people are united, now nothing will be restrained from them that they have imagined to do. When people gather together with one goal, with one purpose, with one common language, meaning they're saying the same thing, apparently it's impossible. There is nothing impossible for those people to accomplish. But when will we, as God's people, realize this? We are oneness in doctrine. We are oneness in theology. But are we oneness in our actions, our behavior, our attitude, and what we're saying? The devil has been observing humanity for thousands of years. He no doubt was at Babel. He saw how it got God's attention. He understands how unity amongst people will allow them to accomplish greater things than working alone. Everybody say this with me. We are better together. God feels strongly about those that seek to cause divisions, attempting to bring disunity. Let me turn your attention to Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief of false Witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. The phrasing of these verses suggests that there are fully seven things that God hates, but he particularly despises the seventh, sowing discord among brethren. Is it any wonder why then Paul, in the closing of his letter to the Roman church, says to mark them which cause divisions? Though the King James Version translated offenses, the NIV says, those that put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned, mark them. Those that cause offenses amongst us, trying to put a stumbling block in your path, Paul says, avoid them. Titus gives instructions on how to handle one that sows discord or causes offenses, Titus 3 and 10. A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. This person is not to be immediately severed from the body, but given an opportunity to repent and be restored. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Matthew 18, starting with verse 15. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. He didn't say go and email everybody, go and text everybody, go and spread it on social media. But he said, go to that brother alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. The structure of this saying, if thy brother go, deliberately mirrors the structure of Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. If a man goes, we are meant to see these teachings together. They complement one another. The responsibility that we feel toward our Christian family should mirror the good shepherd's sense of responsibility for his sheep. Verse 16 says, But if he will not hear thee, then take thee one or two more, 
that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Jesus hearkening back to Deuteronomy 19 and 15. Verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Listen carefully to verse 18. We use this out of context so often. Verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We think that that means that you and I, Brother Trevor, can agree to bind something in its bound in prayer or to lose something to be done in the earth and it's loose. But listen to the context of where this verse is. This verse is strictly related to loosing someone from the body or reattaching someone to the body. When you've gone through the first and second and third attempts, if he continues to reject, the Bible says loose him. If he continues to hear your word and he says, okay, I repent, attach him. This is what he says again. I say unto you in verse 19 that if two of you shall agree, that word agree is symphoneo, the root word of symphonos or harmonious. It's a symphony in God's ears when we unite. When we unite, he says, on earth is touching anything that they shall ask. It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Again, this is regarding loosing and binding in the body. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And when? When it comes to judgment. When it comes to binding someone back to the body or when it comes to severing that person from the body. God is there in the decision that we make if we've gone through the right channels. The enemy will do whatever he can to disrupt unity and cause offenses because he knows we are better together. The Bible declares one can chase a thousand to two thousand, ten, two thousand, ten thousand. Listen to this, it's familiar. Slain, Saul rather, has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This simple statement of those singers provoked Saul to jealousy when it was just a simple fact about the, uni the unity between Saul and David is chasing away God's enemies. But yet a, Saul, uh, but a king Saul that was jealous allowed that to work inside of him and turn him to bitterness. Rather than rejoicing in the tens of thousands of enemies they could destroy, he would rather just do 1,000 by himself. So rather than celebrate and rejoice with David, he gets jealous. But imagine what Saul and David could have accomplished if instead of trying to kill David, he got into agreement with David. Instead of chasing David, they could have chased God's enemies. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, 2 are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? I think we know what that feels like the last few nights. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. Amos says two are better than one. Rather, Ecclesiastes, the writer Solomon. But Amos says this in three and three. Two can't even walk together except they be agreed. 
The word translated together here is the same Hebrew word used in Psalm 133 for unity. It's the Hebrew word yachad. The Hebrew word yachad shares the same root word as echad, as in Deuteronomy 6 and 4, the Shema. So what's the implication here? There is great significance to this kind of togetherness. The degree of unity that God seeks for his children to have amongst one another is the same that's found in him. Let me explain. We often hear people talk about the Lord's Prayer. When the disciples asked him to teach them to pray, the one that starts out, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a model for prayer, but not merely to be recited mechanically, but a template for prayer. It is not actually the Lord's prayer. His prayer is found in John 17. Verse 11 says, chapter 17 is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is what he says in verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So what kind of unity must that be? He prays that his disciples, his followers, people that call themselves Christian would be one as the Father and the Son are one. Now let me just insert a little oneness lesson right here. For anybody that doesn't know, this is not some subordinate part of the Godhead praying to a superior part. This is literally God in the flesh, a.k.a. the Son, as much flesh as you and I have, praying to the Father. Who is Jesus' Father, Brother Trevor? It was the Spirit that overshadowed Mary. And Jesus is not an illegitimate child born out of adultery. If the Holy Ghost overshadowed her in chapter 1, and according to Matthew chapter 1, she was what was of her in her was conceived of the Holy Ghost. If the Father and the Holy Ghost are not the same, Mary should be stoned to death under Mosaic law. It is clear according to Scripture that the Holy Ghost and who Jesus refers to as the Father are the same. The same one. Let's look quickly at John 10 and 30. Jesus says this, I and my Father are one. John 14 and 9 says that he hath seen me, hath seen the Father. So clearly Jesus is no doubt the Son, and he is also the Father, and they are one. And I don't want to get sidetracked, but I just want to make a point that also in John 14, what does Jesus say about the Holy Ghost? I want to reverse engineer something for you. John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. Is there any doubt who the comforter is? Jesus just said it plainly. The Holy Ghost is the comforter. John 14, 16 through 18, he says, and I will pray the father. He shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus declares, I am the truth. So logically, then, his spirit would then be the spirit of truth. Jesus said, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you. Who was dwelling with them? Who was dwelling with them? And he said, I shall be in you. Remember, we are talking about who the comforter is. And Jesus says, I, I 
will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. According to scripture, then the Holy Ghost is the Father. According to scripture, Jesus and the Father are one. According to scripture, the Holy Ghost is the comforter. But Jesus is the comforter, so the Holy Ghost is the spirit of Jesus. So Father equals Son equals Jesus. Holy Ghost equals Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now back to unity. This yachad. Why? In what could be called the most significant prayer that Jesus ever prayed for his disciples, does he pray for unity? John 17, 22 and 23. He said, in the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. 23, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. The word translated perfect here means complete to add what is wanting or lacking in order to render a thing full. It's the same concept found elsewhere in scripture in Ephesians 4 where these two other occurrences of the word unity are found. Ephesians 4 and 1, this is what Paul writes. I Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, or in other words, making every effort to keep the unity, there it is, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is a call for unity in the strongest terms possible. Requiring believers to accept bonds of peace. It's a juxtaposition of terms seemingly oxymoron because bonds by definition confine or bind, but yet peace liberates. So this phrase speaks to the reality that true peace comes at the highest cost. The willingness of one to limit their so-called liberties for the sake of achieving a higher corporate freedom in Christ. To demonstrate what this looks like, let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, he didn't say that you remember you have ought against your brother. The phrasing is important, that you get to the altar, but you remember your brother has a problem with you. He said, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. And as integral as worship is and the altar is, seeking for unity to be restored is more important. Jesus' teaching here indicates that whatever the costs, whether in terms of money or humility, whatever the cost necessary to heal the rupture between two parts of the body is nothing compared to the long-term damage caused by allowing those wounds to fester. Matthew 5 and 25 says he to agree quickly. He says, while you are even in the way, that one of, should not wait even long enough to sort things out to determine who's right and who's wrong. Living in harmony with others is far more valuable than being right. Unity is worth more than our pride. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, 
so also do ye. I don't know about you, but Christ has forgiven me a lot. That's quite a measuring stick to measure forgiveness by. And above all these things, he says, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Again, here, Paul references Jesus's one desire for our being made perfect in one. This kind of unity Paul speaks of, the unity that Jesus prayed for, is only achieved on the basis of apostolic doctrine found in verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 4. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. As God is one, let us be one. And in order to facilitate this, verse 11, he gave some apostles, some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And here's that word again, unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until we come to the unity of the faith, Paul says, to a perfect man, the same word that Jesus used in the high priest prayer in John 17, that each of us would be able to add to what is wanting or lacking in our brother or sister and them be able to add what is lacking in us in order to make the church full. Christ's perfection, his completion, nothing lacking, is the measurement of the unity that God desires for his church, which is his body. That is the unity that we are to attain to. Verse 14, Paul says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of man and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. Everybody say, may grow up. Look at your neighbor. Tell them, grow up. Grow up into him. In all things, which is the head, even Christ. Listen, that we henceforth be no more children, that we may grow up. Unity breeds maturity. Think about that. Unity brings maturity. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Verse 2, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying, strife, and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Paul's pointing out that a lack of maturity is displayed by a lack of unity and a presence of carnality, not minding the things of the spirit and not being able to handle the things of the meat of the word. So it causes me to pause. Am I able to chew the meat? Or does pastor require to give me milk? When I get offended, am I quick to despise the preaching of the word? Or am I mature enough to say, preach it harder, pastor? That word may be cutting me, but bring it on. Yes, 
Apparently there's things in me that need to be cut out, so preach it. And if I've got strife and if I've got division and if I don't like somebody across the aisle, I'm immature. There's nothing wrong with them. The problem is me. Paul states this in 1 Corinthians 12 and 12. For as the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. There is one body with many members. Paul goes on to use different parts of the body to illustrate and to demonstrate the point that though we have different parts of the body and every part of that body has a different function, we can't get jealous or envious of somebody that's an ear and not an eye or a nose and not a mouth. That if you didn't have two feet, you wouldn't be able to walk. But if you cut off your big toe, you'd lose your balance. That toe might seem insignificant to the foot, but the foot has nowhere to brag against a toe. Praise God. This is what happens. When one part of our body doesn't do what it's supposed to or it doesn't work properly, the entire body suffers in the natural and in the spirit. But when it does, the body as a whole develops and that body is equipped to function like it's supposed to. Look at Ephesians 4 and 16 from whom the whole body fitly joined together. If I say together. And compacted by that which every joint supplieth. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Listen, when the body is joined together like it's supposed to, the blood is able to flow. When there's a wound in the body, the blood goes to where the hurt is and heals. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost. Hmm. When each joint together, listen to what it says, it supplies what the other one needs to the effectual working, to make that part of the body as effective as it's supposed to be when we are joined together. And then what happens? It edifies itself. Hmm. As God's people, as the church, we must... Mature. Psalm 133. We're going to revisit this one through three. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Verse two says, it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Verse three, as the dew of Hermon, And as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. How pleasant, the psalmist says it is for brethren to live together in harmony. It's like a symphony. Hebrew, live together as it's used here, also means to live together with God. That when we gather together, He's there. Meaning the Lord also joins his people when they're unified. Brother, Brother Gary or Sister Christine, I'm sorry, could you put the map up there for me? 
no map. Praise the Lord. That's all right. We'll do without it. So I want you to picture, if we were to say Lake Texoma, there's Mount Hermon. Okay? It's a tall mountain. When the dew descends, it flows down that mountain into the Sea of Galilee. Okay, from the Sea of Galilee, there's the Jordan River that flows to the Dead Sea. Nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. There it is. Way up there in the red print, kind of italics, probably won't be able to see it from where you are, but there's a circle way up there in the green that says Mount Hermon. There's a lake here on, there's Sea of Galilee, but then down here, there's the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea, hence its name. But it's also because nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. Let me say this, John 7, 38 and 39. We'll put that back up in a moment if you don't mind. John 7, 38 and 39. This is what Jesus said. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So that means you're going to receive something, and then something's going to flow out of you. This he spake of the spirit, which they believe on him, he says, should receive. Are you thankful to be baptized in the Holy Ghost? But this is what he says. There should be something flowing in, receiving, but there also should be something flowing out. Why is this so important? What's the main point? Because there's nothing that lives in the Dead Sea. Hmm. So if all you're doing is constantly receiving, there's no life. You're saying, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. But you're not ministering outward. You're equivalent of the Dead Sea. And there is no spiritual life in you. You're constantly hungry but never satisfied because not a flow out of you to minister to those around you. What's the point? Unity in the body is not just about us getting along, having a nice picnic. Unity is about harvest. We must read this reference of brethren dwelling together in unity in view of Acts chapter 2, verse 1, which declares that the waiting believers were in one accord in one place. Additionally, this precious ointment is representative of the Holy Ghost that was poured on that day. On the day of Pentecost, when the disciples gathered together in one place with one accord, the anointing oil flowed and 120 were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. But what happened was those four walls could not contain because of the unity, and it spilled outside of the walls. There ought to be enough anointing flowing that what happens here doesn't stay here. It did not stop with 120 in the upper room. I'm sure that they had a wonderful time. I'm sure they would say, man, we had church. Brother Trevor ran the aisles. Pastor preached a great sermon. 
man, Brother Chris cut a rug. We had church. But then we go on about our way and we don't do anything. What happened that day was it was noised abroad. And 3,000 that day were filled with the Holy Ghost. Because what happened in the upper room couldn't be contained by the upper room. It spilled out into the city. The Bible says this, they continued with one accord daily in singleness of heart, found favor with the people, and God added to the church daily. Daily. There was an addition to the church because of unity. I know Sunday we had a dream team fair, and I'm, I'm appreciative. I know pastor's appreciative of the people that signed up. I know he appreciates anybody that serves in any capacity, but I'm going to echo the people that stood up here. You can do something. You may not be a social person. You may not be an extrovert, but you know what? This building needs help. There's, there's things to do around the building. There's things to do in the yard. Amen. And if you are a people person, the, the ushers need you. The hospitality team needs you. Maybe you're not social, but, you, but you're computer literate. Brother Gary and the media team need you. You're constantly receiving but not giving anything out. You come to church, but that's all you do. This is not me. This is the Lord telling you this. He said, stop just coming to church. If you only attend church, he said, you're a dead sea. You're receiving, 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 but you're never giving. And there is no life in you. Because there's no life flowing through you. And then you wonder why you feel disconnected from the body. Hmm. Prayer team, if you would please come. The anointing oil must flow. Is it any wonder why it's a river that, that produces that flow to the Dead Sea? It's just too bad the Dead Sea doesn't have any tributaries that flow out of it. Stand with me. They spoke one language. But with that one language, they began to speak the same things. I pray that Truth Church would become so unified that we would get behind the vision that the man of God has. Even if it sounds absurd, even if it sounds far-fetched, good. Because I don't want what, I don't think that what God wants to do is going to be contained in this building. Amen. There's millions of people in a metroplex to our south that need the salvation of the gospel. And there's people that you go to work with that need the salvation of the gospel. There's people that you go to the grocery store with and encounter. But is anything flowing through you? He said it should. He said it should. Out of your belly. He didn't say out of mine. Out of yours, Brother Trevor. Should flow rivers of living. What kind of water is that? Life-giving Man, we encounter people that are dead in sin and trespasses all over this city. Every restaurant you go to, every time you go to work, every time you go to the grocery store, you encounter people that are dead. And they are thirsting 
That woman at the well said, God, give me that water that you speak of that I'll never thirst again. They're doing anything and everything to try to quench that thirst, to try to fill and satisfy that hunger. Little do they know that the person that they just bumped their cart into has what they have need of. Hmm. But it's because it's not flowing through you. Get involved. Hmm. Get involved. I know we say it something to this effect. I might get it jumbled up a little bit here, but I know something to this effect in, in uh, first steps. That you may not be a tenant everything, but you're a tenant something. You're a tenant something. There's something you can do in the body of Christ. Otherwise, according to the verses that we read, you're going to become amputated. So if you're not involved, I challenge you. I encourage you. Get involved. No longer be a dead sea, but allow that life-giving flow to not only come to you, but go through you. Let's lift our hands. God, if we have buried a talent that you've given us, God, we repent. Don't take that talent and give it to somebody else, Lord. We repent in such a fashion that you might open our eyes to that gift and allow us to use it. That we don't want to just go to church here. We don't want to just attend church here. We don't want to just receive, 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 saying, give me, give me, give me. But, Lord, we want to give. The Bible says, give and it shall be given. Lord, we want to be conduits that the Holy Ghost can flow through. That we might reach this city. That they that sit in darkness might see a great light. Lord, we know that you're coming quickly. And who better than the people of Truth Church to reach Sherman and Denison? Lord, use us. We repent of our wicked ways. We repent of any slothfulness. We repent of being lackadaisical and not taking you serious at your word. Lord, if you're going to use somebody, use me. Let that be your prayer. If you can use anybody, Lord, use me. If you're going to give anybody another talent, Lord, let it be given to me and let me put it to good use that it would be multiplied. Get involved in the kingdom. Get involved in the work of the ministry. Hallelujah. Praise God. Church, let's be unified together. Let's be unified. That we might see a city saved. That we might see the body of Christ at work. Father, we thank you for this time that we've come together. I thank you. I thank you for the word of unity, Lord. And I pray for your continued comfort upon the Gilbert family, Lord. Be near to them. Comfort them. In Jesus' name, cause your face to shine upon them, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your people, for your word, for your promises, for your continued hand of protection. And Lord, help us to find that place of unity of the Spirit. The world has a spirit of unity. We see it all over us, Lord. We see it all around us. But God, we want a unity of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, baptize us with that Spirit. Amen. Why don't you shake somebody's hand, go and greet Bishop, hug on his neck, love on him, and tell somebody else that you're glad to see them and that you'll see them back here on Sunday.